Welcome to the anointed and transformational teaching ministry of Pastor Walea Kinshiku, Senior Pastor of House of Praise Mississauga, Canada, a parish of the Redeemed Christian Church of God. It is our prayer that as you listen to this message, that you will be empowered to achieve your dreams and fulfill your destiny. God bless you as you listen. What the resurrection really means, the greatest miracle, subtitle. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and honor you. We want to say a big thank you to you for what you have done in our lives. As we get into your word today, please enable us, enable me and enable the hearers of God today. In the mighty name of Jesus. By your Holy Spirit, let your word, O God, be rooted and grounded in our hearts. In Jesus' mighty name. What the resurrection really means. Okay. There are some many common misconceptions about the resurrection. Many things that people have in their mind about what the resurrection is. Some people don't even fully understand the difference between resurrection and some other ones, other things. So, two most common uh, misconceptions about the resurrection are this. So, you have to note that Jesus was not, number one, he was not resuscitated. Okay? <laughs> Jesus did not, he wasn't in a coma. You know, when the enemy tries to use people, some of them people from the ivory tower that are highly qualified and they are intellectual giants to try and disprove the resurrection. Some of the things people say is that, oh, you know, Jesus was dead three days in the grave, but it was, people are in coma sometimes for a long time. Maybe he was in coma, then he woke up. But Jesus was not in a coma. He died, died, okay? He died. He was not resuscitated, all right? Jesus Christ was not resuscitated, all right? So, you know, if you look at the story of Darius' daughter, um, Lazarus, the son of the widow of Nain, the son of the Shunammite woman, all of those people were raised from the dead, but that's not resurrection. Resurrection is different. They were raised from the dead, but they died again. The resurrection is what happens whereby somebody rises up from the dead and never dies again. But we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Jesus was not resuscitated, neither was it translated. In the Bible, we have two people that did not see death and were translated. The first one is a man called Enoch. The second one is a man called Elijah. Both of them did not see death. They were transported, translated straight to heaven. Okay? They did not die. So that's not what happened to Jesus. It is true that Jesus ascended to heaven, but he tasted death for all, for you and for me. All right? So Jesus tasted death. So these are some of misconceptions about the resurrection. That's not what the resurrection is about. Please follow me. So what is resurrection? Write this down, please. This is the theological definition of resurrection. Write it down. It matters a lot. Resurrection is the bodily return to life, okay, with a body that is now incorruptible, Okay, transformed and eternal. Please write those words down. Resurrection is the bodily return to life. Okay, with a body now that is incorruptible, the body has been transformed and the body is now eternal. In other words, death has no hold, no power over it anymore. 
Write this down, please, because this is the theological definition of resurrection. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, from verse 42 to 44, is where this was coined from. Okay? And this is what it says. He said, if from, let's start from verse 35. It says, some of you will say, how are, we, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Verse 42 says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. Notice this, the body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. Now, this corruption is talking about here is not bribery. Okay? The corruption is talking about here is decay. Okay? So when the body, when someone is dead and the body is buried, the body begins to decay. Okay? But he said, so it's, it's, it, the body is sown in corruption, in decay, this body that you and I have. But when it's raised, the body that is given to the person is a body that can never see decay, can never, never see that corruption. It's called corruption here. Okay? It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. The body is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. It is sown as a natural body. That means this one that we, we have. But it's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there's a spiritual body. So the resurrection, once again then, is the bodily, that's the very key, very important word. Bodily, bodily. Being bodily raised from the dead to a life now that is transformed, okay, that is, without, that is incorruptible and that is eternal. All right. Let's go on. So let's talk about the resurrection of Jesus for a minute. Jesus Christ, please note this, as simple as this sound, because people don't have a very good grounding in it, then it affects them. Jesus Christ was bodily raised from the dead. Okay? Bodily raised from the dead. Okay? So when we talk about the resurrection, it's not a metaphor. It's not a figure of speech. Okay? It's not an illustration. Jesus was actually, literally, bodily raised from the dead. So let's look at scriptures to prove that. Okay? So the Bible says in Matthew 28, verse 1, New Living Translation, early on Sunday morning, as the new day was done, incidentally, for some of you, that's the reason why local bodies, Christians, gather on Sunday morning. Okay, this is the reason. Why we don't gather on Saturday, we gather on Sunday. All right? Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was done, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to visit the tomb. Verse 2 says, Suddenly there was a great earthquake. An angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards, these are the people that were the Roman guards that were guarding the tomb, preventing the disciples from coming, right? When they saw him, they fell and into a dead faint. The angel spoke to the woman and said, Don't be afraid. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. Okay? So they're looking for Jesus who was crucified, who died on the cross. All right? He said, he isn't here. He's risen from the dead. No, but the interesting thing is that the angel didn't leave it there. It's a, it's a comma. Then he said, just as he said will happen. See that? Then he said, come. This is where his body, you know, he showed them. He said, see, this is where his body was laid. He's risen from the dead. So he's bodily raised now from the dead. Just as he said will happen. Alright? So the angel now said, now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And he has gone ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I told you. 
So these scriptures tell us, and many more in the Bible, but because of our time, that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. I particularly like Matthew 28, verse 6, what the angel said. said the angel said, this is where his body was. Not the word was, past tense. This is where his body was lying. But now it's been raised from the dead. All right. Next thing. Jesus resurrected bodily from the dead. All right. And when he appeared to his disciples, some of them disbelieved. If you were there also, you would disbelieve. Because it has never happened before. But he had to show them his wounds. Okay. So he, raised from, he was raised from the dead bodily. But when he was raised from the dead bodily, he had to show the wounds. And the wounds were very unique. Okay? The wounds on his hands being nailed to the cross, they pierced him on the side also. Where the Bible says water and blood came out. So the piercing on the side and the wounds, they were very, very unique. So Jesus had to show them. So let's take a look at it in Scripture. John chapter 19, you should not forget this, this is very simple. John 19, 19, you know, John 19, 19, 20, okay? Very simple. So the Bible says, that same day at evening, being the first day of the week, okay, when the doors were shut, okay, the doors were locked, the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. Now notice what he said next. So he spoke. And he showed them the wounds in his hands and in his side. The very unique wounds on his side and on his hands, he showed it to them. These were the people that saw him as he was being crucified. They saw the Roman soldiers, you know, brutalize him just for want of a better word. Jesus said, come and look at the wounds. Come and look at my hands. Okay, there are many places in the Bible you see this. You know, at the point Jesus even offered Thomas, who was disbelieving, he said, come and put your fingers in the hole. All right? So anyway, he showed them the wounds. And the Bible says, when he did that, notice they were filled with joy. Remember how they started out? They were in fear. But having showed them that, they were filled with joy because they understood the impact and the import of what was happening. They were filled with joy. So Jesus was raised, number one bodily from the dead. Number two, he was raised up and he showed his wounds, okay, to his disciples. Number three, Jesus, uh, this is one that trips me the most. This one trips me a lot. Jesus Christ appeared to his disciples again and this time he ate suya with them. I mean, sorry, he ate with them. You understand? He ate with them. He ate with them. Now the Bible says, as they, now as they said these things, Luke 24, verse 36 to 43, Jesus himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace to you. But they were terrified and they were frightened. They thought it was a spirit. This is a very important thing. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was not raised as a spirit. He was not a ghost. He was raised from the dead bodily. Please don't let anybody ever attack that concerning if you, if you don't really, really believe that, every other thing you believe is zero. And I'll show you from Scripture as we move on. Jesus Christ, when he was raised from the dead, he was raised up and he had a body. Okay? He was not a ghost. So the Bible says when Jesus appeared to them, they thought he was a spirit. 
All right? Then Jesus had to convince them that it's not a spirit, that it's not a ghost. So Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? Why do you have doubts in your heart? You know, that's the place where young girls will say, no, what do you mean that? Why do I have doubts? <laughs> Can't you see what is happening here? Then Jesus said, behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me. Oh, my God, my God, this is powerful. Jesus said, handle me and see. Handle me and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. You know, when I was younger, people would quote this part. They would say, you know, they Jesus said, oh, spirit does not have flesh and blood. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, handle me and see. Spirit does not have flesh and bones. Very important. When Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And they said, some said, Elijah, the prophet, and so on and so on. Just about, you know, what do you say? Peter said, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But here, that's in Matthew chapter 16 from verse 16 to 18. But here, he said, here, he said, this is not flesh and bones. What is the difference between flesh and bones and flesh and blood? The reason why here, when Jesus resurrected bodily, he emphasized flesh and bones without the blood. If you remember that when he rose up from the dead originally, Mary Magdalene wanted to hug him. And he said, no, 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 don't touch me because I have not yet risen to my father. Oh, my God, my God. Listen to me carefully. I'm yet to go to my father and to your father. So, but here now, Jesus is offering them. If you look at the previous verse again, he said, sorry, this one. He said, handle me. Come and touch me. What is the difference? Here now, Jesus is telling, telling us, you can touch me now and flesh and bones. The reason is very simple. Because the blood had been taken to heaven and applied as an atonement for us on the mercy seat in heaven. So that's why it's flesh and bones. The blood, if the blood was still in him, you and I would die in our sins. But the blood, because in the, ty- in the type of this, in the Old Testament, when the animal is killed, that's not the fullness of the sacrifice. The blood had to be taken by the high priest and applied to the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the whole nation. So that's what Jesus was talking about. And if you really want to get a deeper understanding of this, read it in the book of Hebrews. Study the book of Hebrews. But, you know, read it. Sometimes during the year, we're going to get deeper into it. I will talk about that. Because these are very important fundamental concepts that Christians really, really need to know and be grounded. The reason why Jesus said flesh and bones is that his blood has now been used as an atonement for us. Okay, on the mercy seat. On the mercy seat. You know, when I was young as a Christian, I used to think that when Jesus died on the cross and, you know, was bleeding from his hand, bleeding from his side, that that was what just made our sins go away. No, but if you read in Leviticus chapter 16, you realize that killing the animal and draining the blood of the animal does not atone for the sins. That blood had to be taken and applied to the mercy seat. It is when it's applied to the mercy seat that the sin is now taken away. So the same thing Jesus was alluding to here. All right, let's take it further. Then when he had said this, he showed them his hand and his faith, but while they were still not you know, believe for joy, the mother said, you know, he said, okay, 
I've showed you my hands. This is me. You see, then he asked him, he said, do you have any food? And he said, we don't have the normal food we will have eaten. But look, we, we have some things. So look at what the Bible says. So they gave him a piece of tilapia or bass. Oh, my God, I can't wait for this whole thing to be open so I can go and sit down in the restaurant and just eat some good food. They gave him a piece of fish. The Bible didn't tell us that was fish. I'm just using my own words, okay? They gave him a piece of fish and some honeycomb. The Bible said he took it and ate it in their presence. So, I mean, ghosts don't eat. So this is not a ghost. This is a body. He ate it in their presence. He chewed it. After finishing, he asked for toothpick. You know, he ate it in their presence. And one of the things that amazed me is that when Peter got to the house of Colinius, in Acts of Apostles chapter 10, from verse 39, when Peter, it's not on my slide, but, you know, Peter said, we are witnesses of all the things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed. They killed him hanging on a tree. Keep going. In verse 40, he said, God raised him on the third day and showed him openly. This is Peter now recounting his experience. Now, he said, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God. Even to us, who, look at it now. To us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So Peter said, of course, we ate with him. We drank with him after he rose from the dead. He, he, was, he rose from the dead bodily. Okay? That's very important. Now let's talk about this now. This is very key. Denying the resurrection. Now, when I, this was laid upon my heart, I said to myself, most people I know, you know, I was kind of like having a conversation with the Holy Spirit in my heart. Most people I know don't know that are in church, don't actually come out and deny the resurrection. So, I don't know if this is going to be relevant to preaching in the church. Maybe if I was talking and wanted to talk about, you know, going into the realm of apologetics, maybe talking to a lot of bunch of unbelievers, then I can get deeper into this. But God, you know, I felt God laid to my heart, no, People in the church don't deny the resurrection by coming out and saying there is no resurrection. But as long as people are ignorant of the import of the resurrection, in a way what is happening is that they don't understand the implications. And then God started showing me that the reason why many believers, their faith is not working and things are not happening the way they want it to happen, is because they don't have a good grasp of this strong foundation. So denying, the, denying or ignoring or being ignorant of the full ramifications of the resurrection has implications. Okay? So because of our time today, let's look at two of those implications. Okay? Let's look at those implications. The first implication is hopelessness. If you find a believer, listen carefully, that is always struggling with depression, always having suicidal thoughts, struggling with depression, you know, always low, always feeling, and I'm not suggesting, listen very carefully, I'm not say, to suggesting that you and I can feel low from time to time. I'm not talking about the um, once in a while, you know, rare moments. I'm talking of, I, I, I've seen people that, they, they hardly, hardly have joy. You know, then the part of the reason is because 
the impact of the resurrection has not been made real to them in their hearts. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, the Bible says, if in this life only we have hope, we have all men the most pitiable. In other words, what Paul was saying here is that once we get born again, all right, once we get born again, our outlook of life changes. We are, not, we are not just now optimistic about our tomorrow here on earth. We are far more optimistic about our future with Christ. Okay? And Paul says, if you don't believe this, you will be pitiable. And I've seen many people that are pitiable in the body of Christ. You start saying to yourself, this whole idea of Christianity is not supposed to bring joy. But the reason is because they don't fully understand the impact of the resurrection. The resurrection has given you and I a life that continues. A life that continues. Not only in this world, but in the world to come. It's called eternal life. So because I know that, I know that life does not end here on earth. Everything I'm, we're doing here today, I'm doing here. Everything you are doing, everything that is happening to us here now on earth, is completely temporary. That's why one of those old saints called John Bunyan, John Bunyan said that we are pilgrims on earth. This is just a journey. Okay? This is just a journey. This is not our home. This world is not our home. Kenny Rogers, this world is not our home. Our home is with Christ in heaven. Okay? That's why Colossians 3, verse 1 and 2 encourages us to focus on the things in heaven, not just on the things on the earth. Don't live your life as a Christian as if everything ends here. Okay? Everything does not end here. Here is where we do the transactions to do the good works that will determine how our eternity will be. When we don't have this, so whatever suffering, whatever challenges we're facing here today, we cannot be object of pity. Don't pity me. Can somebody say that, please? Don't pity me. Please say that again with me. Don't pity me. If I've seen many Christians that all they just want to do is to, is to you, know, you know, talk about their circumstances in such a way that to elicit sympathy and pity from other people. You know, and say, oh, I don't know if you know what is going on with me. So and so and so and so. And their whole goal, the goal, there's nothing wrong in telling people what is, you know, what is going on with you. Maybe they can support you in prayer and all that. But their whole goal is to elicit incredible pity. As a pastor of this number of years, I've seen people come to me and tell me, Pastor, I'm going through this. And I say, oh, wow. Okay, let us pray about it. They say, oh, Pastor, before you pray, I need to tell you more. And they say a lot more. I say, okay, it's okay, it's okay, madam. It's okay, it's okay, don't worry. There's nothing God can let me pray. Let's pray, let's pray, let's just, let's pray, let's trust God. He said, no, pastor, I need to really tell you. And then I started realizing that, okay, what, the reason why they're really going into this depth and making it look so big and big and big and big is not because of the prayer now. It's they want to elicit sympathy, pity. And some people feel that. The more they bring up all of these grandiose, very, very terrible-sounding stories, you know, they f and people pity them. It's because they don't have an understanding of the resurrection, okay? When we understand the resurrection, we understand that we, as Christians, are not objects of pity. Please say with me, I'm not an object of pity. Oh, I wish somebody was saying that. I'm not an object of pity. Don't pity me. 
If you are watching with your family members, tell two or three of them, I'm not an object of pity. Don't pity me. Yes, that's right. So hopelessness is one of the implications of ignoring or denying the resurrection. The second one is even more damaging. It's that our faith becomes useless. When we don't really understand the resurrection, I've seen people that don't have this strong foundation of the resurrection and they want to exercise faith to get a job. They want to exercise faith to buy a house. They want to exercise faith for healing. They want to exercise faith in different directions. But the truth is that faith will never, never work until it sits on the firm, strong foundation of understanding what the resurrection means. So our faiths become useless. This is not my opinion. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 tells us that. It says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty and in your sins. I've seen many people that when they pray, they pray with a major burden and guilt of guilt of their past. Okay? Because they, are, they never have an assurance whether God will hear them or even God if God is listening at all. And this is all part because we don't understand the full ramifications of the re resurrection. So they feel a very strong sense of guilt. Then they want to exercise faith. Because Satan understands that one of the things that neutralizes faith the fastest is condemnation. Condemnation is a major, major neutralizer of faith. And that what gives you an, a, a strong assurance that there is now no longer any condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit, Romans chapter 8 verse 1, is the fact that I know that Christ was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead because my sins have now been taken away. The call and the demand of justice was satisfied. That's why he was raised from the dead. When Jesus became sin for me, and became sin for you, 2 Corinthians 5.21, because he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that you and I might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. When Jesus became sin for us, the Father forsook him. So he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 says, his eyes are too pure to behold evil. So when he became sin, even the Father forsook him. But... After he went through the pain and all of that and went to hell for you and I, what happened was that the demand of justice was satisfied. So when Jesus was raised from the dead, part of that then was that it was a proof that the wrath of God that was looming on you, looming on me, is now no longer looming on us. We are no longer enemies of God. We are now children of God. 1 John chapter 3 verse 1 now says, What manner of love is this that has been bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God? Exciting. So Satan, you can't bring guilt to me. You can't bring condemnation to me. Christ took my sins. He took the penalty of my sins. He took my guilt. He took my condemnation. He was condemned on the cross for everything I have done. Don't let anybody condemn you. Okay, people can speak to you and bring conviction to you. But don't let anybody condemn you. Don't let anybody put a negative label on you. All right? When you do that, 
that means we don't understand the ramifications of the, of the resurrection. And what happens then is that you don't want to exercise faith. You can't. Your faith becomes useless. All right? So then, let's get into it as we wrap up today. We'll continue some other time. Let's get into it a bit. So what then does the res- resurrection mean? Oh, my God. This is an entire series on its own. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'll touch on one or two things, okay? Then we'll find a way somehow this month to continue. I'll open up another topic. I'll open up the topic as, as a subtitle of this on next week Sunday. What does the resurrection mean? The first thing it means is this. Ah, this is deep. The resurrection was a confirmation and declaration of the real identity of Jesus Christ. This is critical. This is crucial. A confirmation of the real identity of Jesus. You know, today, when you and I talk about Jesus today, you know, people say, oh, of course, we worship him. Jesus, you know, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and all that. In the days when Jesus was ministering here on earth, most people, majority of the people, did not see him or know that he is the son of the living God. They saw him as a teacher. That's what they called him. Some saw him as, you know, they call him rabbi, right? Some saw him as one of the prophets and so on and so forth. They never really saw him. So the resurrection, Romans chapter 1 verse 4, tells us that he was declared to be the son of God with power by the spirit of holiness through the resurrection from the dead. Why is this important? This is extremely important. Listen, this is so important because uh, in my own experience of talking to Christians, you know, there is this lingering thing in the heart of some people that when they're dealing with God and dealing with the word of God, because Jesus is the word of God manifested in flesh, Dealing with the word of God, they don't believe the word of God is sufficient on its own. If you're one of those people that still believe that the word of God needs help to help you, it's because you don't understand that Jesus, who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. John chapter 1 verse 1, verse 14, and the word was God. Right, and you know, the word became flesh rather and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. But John chapter 1, verse 2, John chapter 1, verse 2 says, It was in the beginning with God. All right, verse 3 says, And all things, look at that, all things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Give me the New Living Translation, please. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. I love it. Chapter 1, verse 15. Uh, 1, 15 and 16. Ah, I love it. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. <laughs> he existed before anything was created. He existed before anything was created. He existed before 1867 when Canada was created. He existed before everything was created. And he's supreme over all of creation. Come on now. He's supreme over... No, leave it there for me, my brother. The thing is, is tearing me up. He's supreme over all of creation, over everything created. Now, 
just in case you are still bothering a boy, bothered about what does it mean by all of creation, keep going there. It says, for through him, God created everything. I love this. Now watch this now. In the heavenly realms and on earth. So Jesus is not one of those people in the realm of the spirit that is combating and trying to fight the forces that are fighting you. No. Through him, God created everything. On earth, okay, under the earth, and even in the heavenly places. Now he explains it. He said that he made the things we can see. So anything you can see, all right? He made the things we can see. Then he made the things we cannot see. Now notice this now. What are the things we cannot see? Thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities in the unseen world. You know, sometimes people come to, you, to, to us and say, oh, pastor, I'm going through a challenge and I've been having these strange, strange dreams. You know, I just keep seeing myself at the bottom of the ocean in the water and, you know, my mom went to some, you know, some of her pastors and some places and they prayed for her and they said that I'm, I'm being attacked from the marine kingdom. Some said I'm being attacked from some strange places, the marine kingdom or some, some witchcraft and it's all of that. And when you, so people like that, when you try and show them the word of God and tell them based on this word of God and so on and so, they, they don't believe. It's because they don't understand who Jesus is. They don't understand who Jesus is. They think that something else has to be done to appease some jokers in the marine kingdom. Some things have to be done to appease some losers in the coven of witches or some losers in the coven of wizards or some people that gather in Freemason or cults or some other occultic group. Listen to me. The Bible says the thrones which we cannot see, the kingdoms we cannot see, the rulers there we cannot see, the authorities in the kingdom of darkness we cannot see in the unseen world, the Bible says it's not, Jesus is not only head or stronger than them. They were created by him. You know, the Bible says everything was created through him. Keep going, please. It was created through him. I will get deeper into this hopefully this month. You will get to understand it better. My point here is this. Jesus is the supreme ruler of the universe. You understand? He is the king of kings. So if there is a king, there is a ruler, there is a force somewhere, the same way you will be trembling and bowing, they tremble even more for Jesus Christ. They tremble more for him. So Jesus is not just one of those people. Jesus is the supreme ruler of the universe. The universe includes the unseen realm and the realm that is seen. Jesus is the supreme ruler. That is why, because this same Jesus then is the living word of God. That is why the Bible, the word of God is sufficient. It's sufficient. The word of God is sufficient. All right? All right. So it was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. So Jesus was not just a good teacher. He wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a great selfless leader. He was God incarnate. You know, God incarnate. There are people in the Bible, in the Gospels, that got immediate transformative testimonies were the people that believed this. Let me give you two examples. One, in Mark chapter 5, the woman with the issue of blood. In verse 27, the Bible says she heard about Jesus. Let me give you three examples. She heard about Jesus. Based on what she heard about Jesus, she made up her mind that Jesus does not even need to pray for me. 
I will touch the hem of his garment because I'm not just touching a man. I'm touching God incarnate, the one that created everything inside me, and is the one that will bring about a resolution to the things inside me. She got a solution. Look at the centurion. The centurion said, why are you coming to my house? God, you don't need to come to my house. He said, listen, I know you are a king. Just say the word. Speak the word only. Luke 7, 7, Matthew 8, 8. Speak the word only. My servant will be healed. These men of God and women of God that lay hands, which is right, which is important. Don't get me wrong. Men and women of God lay hands so that the God inside the man can flow to you. Okay, that's why we lay hands. We lay hands not because the hands of the pastor or the hands of the prophet or the apostle is special. It's so that the God that is special on the inside of them, that's one of the means it flows and touches people. But this man said, you don't need to come and lay hands. You're God. Don't speak the word. Okay, that's the second example. The third example is in Mark chapter 10 from verse 46 or 46 here, where it talks about a man called Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. When he saw Jesus by the road, he said, who is that? He said, oh, Jesus is going. He called Jesus by his messianic name. That messianic name is the kingly royal name of Jesus that typifies the fact that this is the son of God. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So when he said that, you know, it caught the attention of God. In all of these cases, you will see that what Jesus said was sufficient. Jesus said to the centurion, just go your heart. I've not seen this side of faith before in Israel. The servant lives. The servant lives. The woman with the issue of blood, Jesus said, who touched me? When she came, Jesus said, daughter, your faith has made you whole. That's the story. Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? I'm going to receive my side. Shh, receive your side. Jesus, all Jesus said was enough. So the word of God, the Bible, is enough, is sufficient to solve every problem in the world. If you can find it under the direction of the Holy Spirit, find scriptures in the Bible concerning you. All you now need to do is just hold on to it. It's only a matter of time before the situation bows to the God that created everything. The one that existed before the mountains were formed. It eventually bows to it. All right? Okay. Number two, the resurrection, I love this, proves the faithfulness of God beyond a doubt. It proves the faithfulness of God beyond a doubt. Let me quickly try and wrap up. There are people that are joining us here right now today that are one of the biggest challenges to our faith is the integrity of God. It's to say, I know God can do it. I'm just not sure if he will do it for me. I know God can do it, but will he do it for me? That is a question of the integrity of God and a question of the faithfulness of God. Okay? The faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. But, you see, understanding the resurrection proves to us the faithfulness of God eternally. Let me show you what I mean. When Jesus was about to die, in Luke 23, 46, look at what he said. He called on his father and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
Then the Bible says he breathed his last. What does that mean? This was the last prayer Jesus prayed for himself before he died. As you can see, you know, he prayed this prayer knowing fully well that there has been a promise written in scripture that if he goes in this direction and dies and lays in the grave, in a place where he will, not be, he will no longer be able to pray, he will no longer be able to sing, he will no longer be able to quote scripture, it is written, it is written, it is written, he will just have to completely depend on the faithfulness of the Father to raise him from the dead. Some of you right now are in situations whereby you have prayed, you have quoted scripture, you have declared, you have confessed, you have sowed a seed. It's just time now to rest on the faithfulness of God. Okay? To believe that God is faithful, he will not leave you in that grave. He will not leave you in that situation. Alright? So Jesus said, I commit my, my spirit into your hand. So then what happened? So Jesus was in the grave, right? So what happened then? The Bible says, the father did not leave his soul in the grave. He didn't allow even the body of Jesus in the grave to see corruption. Look at the scripture. Acts chapter 2. Look at it, verse 24 to 27. Talking about Jesus, it says, Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that, that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope. For you, talking about God, will not leave my soul in Hades. You will not leave my soul in Hades. You will not leave my soul in Hades. You will not allow me to see corruption. This is a powerful scripture that you and I understanding the resurrection, we can apply it to yourselves. Even when you can't pray, when you're going through very difficult, fiery situation, you should keep saying to yourself, talking about the faithfulness of God, God, I know you will not leave me in this poverty. I know you will not leave me in this situation. I know you will not leave me the way I am today. You will not allow me to see shame. I know you will not allow me to see tragedy. I know you are a faithful God. You didn't leave Jesus in the grave the way he was there. But I, I know you will not leave me in this situation just to be hanging. I know you, you are too faithful. You have proven your faithfulness when you raised Christ from the dead. I know you will not leave me to rot in this situation. I will not rot in this situation. I will not rot in this poverty. My life will not continue to be uncertain with this immigration issue. I know you will not leave me. You will not leave me in this situation. When you are doing that, what you are doing is that you are speaking forth the faithfulness of God. And let me assure somebody out there today, speaking by God and speaking for God, okay, as a representative of God, God will not leave you in that adverse circumstance. In the name of Jesus Christ, he will not leave you, you will not be put to shame. Your life will not see corruption. You will not be put to shame. All those that are gathered that are waiting for you to share bad news. Hey, I have something to say concerning you. Listen to me. All those that are gathered waiting for you to share bad news. The greatest good news of your life is about to break forth in the name of Jesus. The biggest, greatest, grandiest good news of your life is about to break forth in Jesus' name. You will never share bad news. Oh, that's a strong word for somebody. You 
you, you will never share bad news. According to the scriptures, Psalm 118 verse 15, the voice of melody, the voice of thanksgiving shall be heard in the tabernacle of the righteous from you within the next 90 days. You will share a grand testimony of good news in Jesus' name. You will share a grand testimony of good news in Jesus' name. Somebody shout a living amen to that. Come and shout another living amen to that. He will not leave you in corruption. He will not allow you to see corruption. God is faithful. Now I'd like you to make a boast. Give the devil a bit of a knock with your declaration this morning. Say with me, my God is faithful. Oh, say it, say it like you really mean this thing now. You don't, don't forget, you are not saying it to yourself. You are not saying this one even to God. God already knows he is faithful himself. Okay, what are you saying that or you don't say that? You are saying it to the enemy so that the enemy can understand that you are not shifting from your position of believing in God. Please declare it very forcefully. My God is faithful. He will not leave me in advanced situation. Oh, declare it again. My God is faithful. He will not leave me in advanced situation. Say with me, my God is faithful. Therefore, I will not be put to shame. Oh, please say, let Satan hear you and tremble. Let them be wondering what is this. That isn't, hasn't this girl, doesn't this girl understand the circumstances? Doesn't this man understand what is going on? Doesn't this woman understand what's going on? Doesn't this girl, can't this girl interpret the letter they just sent to her? Can't this boy read the letter? Come on, somebody say with me again. My God is faithful. Therefore, I will not be put to shame. That's right. Your God is faithful. You will not be put to shame in Jesus' name. There's only one person that will be put to shame in all of this, and that's Satan and his agents in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, number three, the resurrection proves the incredible superiority of the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God, listen to me, God and Satan are not, are not opposite. Okay? They're not equal and opposite of each other. Okay? That, okay, God is good, Satan is bad, they're always fighting each other. Sometimes God wins, sometimes Satan wins. That's not true. Don't buy into that ideology. I know that some people don't say it that way, but that's the way some people behave, which really shows what they believe. The wisdom, that's why the Bible doesn't say God is the most wise. The Bible says God is the only wise God. Okay? Jude chapter 1 verse 25, Romans chapter 16, chapter 16 or so, verse 25. He said, God is the only wise God. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. God is the only wise God. Yeah, Romans 16, 27 rather. God is the only wise God. Anytime God, Bible talks about God's wisdom, it says he's the only wise. So you're wondering, what does that make every other person? God is telling you that when it comes to the wisdom of God, Relative to any other entity, Satan, all of his cohorts, and human beings, it's telling us that we are all, frankly speaking, respectfully, you know, we are not wise. It's Easter Sunday, so let's be respectful. It just basically means that we are not wise <laughs> when we're dealing with God. Please understand that the resurrection proves the incredible superiority of the wisdom of God. And I'll tell you the application of this in a minute. But first, let's look at it. First Corinthians chapter 2, 
verse 7 to 8. For we speak the wisdom of God. It's wrapped in a mystery. The hidden wisdom of God. Now notice this. Which God ordained before the ages, before everything started. For your glory, for my glory. So this wisdom of God is being released, not for God to impress anybody, but for God to bring glory to your life and glory to my life. Then the Bible now says in verse 6, which I love, it said none of the rulers of this age knew. Here he's not talking about physical rulers. He's talking about entities in the realm of the spirit, in the unseen realm. He said they have no clue. Spirit of witchcraft has no clue. The spirit of the occult, they have no clue. Satan, the leader of the kingdom of darkness himself, he is so dumb, he had no clue. The Bible says, had they known, they would never have attempted the crucifixion of Jesus. Remember in John, John, in the book of John, chapter 13, verse 27, the Bible says, Satan entered Judas. Satan himself entered Judas. So, Satan entering Judas, it was the one that instigated, okay, the whole idea of crucifixion and all of that. He instigated it. But the Bible said, had he known that he was actually playing into the hands of God, he would never have done that. Please, I want you to understand. When the brothers of Joseph put Joseph in the pit, they did not know that the pit is the route or the route to the palace. When Potiphar's wife lied on him and he entered the prison, she thought, I've done away with that guy. That guy hurt me, and now I'm going to hurt him. I'm done away with him. That's the end of his life. Nobody goes to that prison and ever is going to come out again. What she did not know was that that prison was the route to the palace. When Haman went to dig the pit for Mordecai and signed all the law, he did not know, he thought he was going to eliminate Mordecai, his enemy. He did not know that he was going to eliminate himself so that Mordecai <laughs> can reign. Listen to me. The Bible says that night the king could not sleep. Esther chapter 6 verse 1. Then somebody, the king said, okay, I can't sleep. Can you give me some history books from my archive? They brought it out and they told the king that somebody saved your life some years ago. King asked, what has been done for that man? They said, nothing. Suddenly, a man showed up. Then this, the king asked a man, a man, what should we do for the man the king wants to honor? If a man had known it was Mordecai they want to honor, he would have reduced it completely to the ground. But he did not know how dumb was he. You know, it's the same thing here. That was the type of Satan. If Satan knew that what God was about to do in your life, he would not have brought the challenges he brought to you. You wouldn't be good. If Satan had known that me coming to Canada, myself and Topsy coming to Canada, that we will embrace and receive and walk in our calling, okay, and fulfill our calling, it will, it will have allowed me to go to the U.S. that I wanted to go to originally to go and practice pharmacy, okay? But he blocked the way several times, several times, several times, and I can see he was, they were rejoicing in hell. It's over for this guy. He cannot practice pharmacy anymore. What they did not understand is that it's part of the grand plan. It's part of the whole grand plan. Now he's regretting it. He's saying to himself, now, ah, this boy would have been better locked up in one place. So he'll just practice pharmacy and enjoying himself. This Sunday morning now he would have been just having his swimming in his swimming pool by behind his house rather than doing what he's doing right now. You see, friends, 
Satan does not know the next move God is about to make in your life. He can't anticipate it. He does not see it coming. He's going to be completely blindsided like Haman was blindsided. And guess what is going to happen? In the name of Jesus Christ, you are a... I don't know why I keep on saying this because I know it's for somebody. You are about to share good news. You are about to share good news. You are about to share good news. People have been laughing at you, talking behind you, snaring at you and all of that. They don't know that your good news has been cooking. You are about to share good news. Some people that love you, they really love you. But you know, somehow they've given up on you. Jacob, the Bible tells us, loved Joseph so much. But you know, along the line, he gave up. He sent it himself. He said, no, Joseph, my son is dead. What he didn't know was that Joseph was dead. Listen carefully. But Zaphonat Panea had risen up. God has taken the time through the trials of Joseph to bring Zaphonat Panea out of Joseph, okay, to sit on the throne. Okay, so later on when they told him, he said, oh, now I see. When he saw the chariot, he said, oh, Joseph, my son, is alive. I want to let you know that your dreams are not dead. You know, when the mother of Moses took Moses and put Moses in that basket that night to put him on the river because was, she was afraid, she was so scared. You know, she thought that she put us, one of her daughters there. She thought that daughter was going to come in and knock the door anytime. And say, sorry, mom, you know, is drowned or is lost. You know, just bring some bad news. She was expecting any time the door would knock. And they come and tell her. What did she not know is that right there, the Bible says, the daughter of Pharaoh came there and saw Moses. Watch this now. Saw Moses. And the Bible says at that moment, Moses cried. That's what the Bible says. The baby cried. The baby cried. And when the baby wept, it was, you know, you have to synchronized by God. The baby wept, and the Bible said it elicited compassion in her. And she said she knew. She said, this is one of the Hebrew students. She knew. She knew that this one does not qualify to be saved. She knew that this, this papers does not qualify to be signed. She knew that this one does not qualify for the permanent residency or the citizenship. She knew it. She knew. She knew that what she's about to do right now was to go against the edict of her father. But she said, I'm going to save this one. So she brought him out of the water, which means she drew him out of the circumstances, and she named him Moses, saying, why? Because I drew him out of the water. What she did not know she was doing was that she was bringing the deliverer that was inside the baby out of the baby. Let me say something to you. Very, very, within these next weeks, what concerns you? It might be a file, it might be a case, it might be some employment issues, whatever it is, it's going to come up for decision making. Whatever needs to come up for decision making concerning you. The God that brought about compassion inside the daughter of Pharaoh is going to stir up compassion on the decision makers in the name of Jesus. They will give you an exception in Jesus' name. I don't know who I'm talking about. It might not be precedented. But they will give you an exemption in the name of Jesus Christ. They will give you an exemption in Jesus' name. <laughs> if Pharaoh had known, I'm run out of time already. If Pharaoh had known that chasing Moses away from Egypt would have led him into the burning bush that was not consumed, he would have left him in Egypt. But by chasing him away, making him a fugitive, that being a fugitive, 
actually turned him into a mighty warrior. The same Moses that he chased away showed up and said, Pharaoh, the God of Israel says, let my people go that they may serve him. He chased Moses away and took the royal rod in the hand of Moses away. Stripped Moses of his royal authority and took that rod away. On the way in the wilderness, Moses found a crooked stick. Took the stick and became a shepherd of some sheep. What he did not know was that the, sh- the rod, the little rod that, that Moses took, that was using to shepherd the sheep, in the hand of God, is now superior to any golden rod in the hand of a pharaoh. Listen to me very carefully. As I stretch forth my hand right now to you, in the name of Jesus Christ, as I represent the almighty God, that which is in your hand, you might seem unqualified. You might seem that you don't deserve it. Everybody might say you don't deserve it. Even you might think, I know, I agree, I don't deserve it. But in the name of Jesus Christ, may the favor of God today, may it consume all of your lack of qualification in the name of Jesus Christ. May the favor of God grant you a superb exemption in Jesus' name. Your case will be different. Your case will be different. Your case shall be different. Your case shall be different in the name of Jesus. You will share good news. You will hear good news. On that night, the daughter of Moses' mother, Moses' sister, came home, ran home. When she knocked the door, when she knocked the door, I can imagine Moses' mother already started crying. It's bad news. She's back. She's about to come and tell me they've killed my son. All I just need to know is to tell, to tell me that my son was not in too much pain when he died. What is, so she started wailing and crying. The people that were around her started already crying. And the lady came in, and her own demeanor was different. She was smiling, she was laughing. And the mother said, what happened? How did they kill him? I hope he was not in pain. And she said, no, mom, they did not kill him. So where is he? Where is he? What happened? Did he drown? They said, no, mom, he did not drown. So what happened to him? Did an animal eat him up? No, mom, animal did So what happened to him? Mom, Moses is now in the palace. <laughs> Moses is now in the palace. The mom said, are you crazy? What are you telling me? Moses' mom is now in the palace. But the daughter has taken Moses. They put a bracelet on his hand now to signify that this one is different. And they're giving him back to you and they will be paying you. You remember you and daddy were talking about lack of money? This Moses has brought money into the house. These circumstances has given us financial breakthrough. In the name of Jesus, that shall be your portion also in the name of Jesus Christ. Hey! Now, let's, let's wrap, let me wrap this up quickly. You know, let me just go on. Listen to this. Let me, I, I, I have to skip it here. The biggest investment that Satan ever made to win a battle, battle on earth turned out to be his greatest humiliation. If you're writing, try and capture this and remember it every time. You know, capture it. If you're watching, take a, take a picture of it on your screen. Remember it at all times. Read it before you sleep. Read it when you wake up. The biggest investment Satan ever made concerning to win a battle on earth was the crucifixion of Jesus. He made huge investment. All of the demons in hell showed up. They steered up the crowd against the will of Pontius Pilate, against reason to crucify him. They made sure that they crucified him. 
you know, they really dealt with him. What Satan did not understand was that this was going to be his greatest defeat. Please understand, what you are going through right now, it would not lead to your defeat. It will lead to your greatest honor in the name of Jesus. But guess what? At the same time, it will lead to the greatest humiliation of Satan. You know, all the forces that are gathered against you, this will lead to the greatest humiliation in their lives in the name of Jesus Christ. So friends, cheer up. It's resurrection morning. Cheer up. It's a new day. Cheer up. It's a new season. Jesus is risen from the dead. Good news is here. Good news is here. I mean, you can say that with me. My good news is here. Good news is here. He raised, he was raised from the dead so that I can be raised from this situation. My good news is here. Hallelujah. Your good news is here. I want to say this to you. Please hear me clearly. Look at me. In the name of Jesus that is above everything, I am assured by the God that called me. This is not my first rodeo by the grace of God. In 10 days' time, it will be exactly 21 years I started pastoring this church. On the 14th of April, I started in, year 20, in the year 2000. So please, I want you to understand, this is not uh, me just wishing you well. I'm saying over you, write it down and mark it. Within the next 90 days from today, the good news they said you will not share, the great news they said you will not hear, the good news that said will not come forth from you, you will share that good news in Jesus' name. You will hold that good news in your hands. You will embrace that good news. The celebration they said you will not have, the shout of joy, the shout of you know, acclamation. Listen to me. The private dance that only you and the Holy Spirit knows. The private song of praise that only you and the Holy Spirit know the meaning. That you are going to dance. Within the next 90 days, there shall be a manifestation of such an incredible miracle in the name of Jesus Christ. Let me assure you today, Jesus laid in the grave for three days and three nights. He was not put to shame. On that Sunday morning, he rose from the dead. The good news is that you and I have now also, we were raised together with him. Ephesians 2, 6. From that situation you might be today, that might be adverse, you will rise up in Jesus' mighty name. You will share that good news. You will share that good news. I don't care how many witches, wizards, and the occult are trying to hold it back, but you will share that good news. I'm not talking of the person next to you that does not believe. I'm talking of you. You will share that good news in Jesus' name. So that if you believe that, then say that with me. That I will share the good news. Come on, declare it now. Come on now, say that with me. I will share the good news. I will share the good news. One more time, shout it out. I will share the good news. In Jesus' mighty name, you will share the good news. This is the end of the message. We are sure that you have been blessed. For more information, please visit our website at www.houseofpraise.ca. God bless you.